0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing weekend so far. This podcast today is going to be a little bit different than normal. Many of you know that I recently launched a sports business chat on Microsoft Teams. It's an awesome community. We have a few hundred people in there so far. We're sharing articles, talking about current events in the sports business space, and everyone is getting smarter together. But one of the things that I wanted to do with starting this chat was do Uh, occasional Q&A episodes, so things where you guys could ask me questions and I can try to answer them in a mailbag style format on the podcast. I already get a bunch of these on email or DM or whatever it is back to the newsletter responses. So I thought this could be one central location where we could do a little bit more of this. I don't know how often we're going to do this. It may be a one and done. It may be once a month. Maybe it's once a week. We'll see how it goes and we'll see how you guys enjoy it. So once the episode's over, just shoot me a message. Let me know if you did enjoy it. Let me know if you have other questions you'd like me to answer on the next one. And we'll have some fun with it. So these questions are a mix of what I would say, both professional and personal. There's a couple of each, but I'm going to try to answer as many as I can over the next like 15, 20, 25 minutes here. But let's start with Victor. So Victor's in the chat. Victor said, hi, Joe, how many things do you do at a time like career and having time to record the podcast and write the articles? This question came out a little bit clunky, but I think essentially what Victor is asking is, what does the routine look like and how do I do all of this stuff in one day? And for those of you that don't know, I'll kind of take you back in some history here. I used to work at J.P. Morgan. I was on the fixed income side on their wealth management team. Great job, loved it, but I didn't think that it was something I wanted to do forever, right? In finance specifically and that kind of career path in J.P. Morgan it's very structured. You know exactly kind of where you're going to be over the next few years, whether that's getting promoted from analyst to associate to vice president and eventually to managing director. It's very, it's very uh, detailed and you know exactly where you're going to be from a structure standpoint. That's great for some people. But for me, someone who was already having second thoughts about that as a career path from a pure passion standpoint, it ultimately made me decide to go do this content stuff. And when I thought about it, it was twofold. It was like, what do I really enjoy doing? And I had grown up a sports fan my entire life. I actually had an internship at Octagon Sports Agency my junior year of college, I guess it was. And I wanted to get back into sports in some capacity. But what I realized as I was getting older was that I had really taken a liking to the business portion of it, right? It turned from just watching Sports Center reruns to telling my friends about the box scores, analyzing players to like, what are the media contracts? Why is this person doing a commercial for this brand and vice versa, right? So like, there's a bunch of stuff that went into the business side, and I was constantly talking to friends about it. And I thought there was a huge white space to do it online with what we'll call like twenty first century digital first platforms, podcast, newsletter, social media, and more. So that's what I did. And what's evolved off of that is this unique structure where I probably spent about fifty percent of my time, maybe sixty percent of my time doing the content, and forty to fifty percent of my time investing. And I'll break down what a typical day looks like. I wake up, I have a gym in my garage that I recently built. So over the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, I've been working out. I work out at like 6, thirty, seven 7 o'clock in the morning. I work out for 30, 45 minutes. I take my dog out, Golden retriever named Ranger, best dog in the world. And I feed him, I shower, I get dressed, I go to work, right? So I'm kind of at the desk downstairs in my house by, we'll call it like 8 o'clock. I then work throughout the day and it's a mix of both, right? So everything you see online that is content related, post on Twitter, post on LinkedIn, Instagram post, uh, videos, whatever it is, that all is part of the day for sure. And then the other part of the day is split up between a bunch of other stuff from the investing side, which is meeting with founders. I do quite a bit of advising to early stage startups. So these are kind of like friendly relationships, but also contractual obligations, things that I'm kind of like advising them on to do in the sports space specifically. Consulting goes along with that. Certainly a, a decent bit of consulting as well. Obviously, there's a bunch of meetings throughout the day, meeting new people, taking calls with you know founders, like I said before, and a bunch of other people as well. I do a decent amount of speaking engagements as well. You guys will remember a few months ago, I went to Barcelona. I spoke at their conference beforehand and interviewed the president of FC Barcelona afterwards. So some of this mixes kind of between the investing and the advising and the consulting side, but also with the content side as well. So Barcelona is a perfect example because I was able to get a decent bit of content out of that as well with the interview with Joan Laporta. So that's like a typical day. The beauty of this is that every day looks different, right? And it's something that I truly, truly, truly do enjoy doing. The feedback that I most often get is that people enjoy the content because they can tell I'm passionate about it. And that's not bullshit. I literally love this stuff. I do it all on my own time. I would do it even if I wasn't getting paid to do it from a content standpoint. So I think that is a huge differentiating factor. It's something that I know that I can be one of the best people in the world at. And that is ultimately why I decided to go all in on the content stuff and leave a relatively very safe job at JP Morgan, where you know, you're going to be making good money for the rest of your life if you stay there and you perform well. So I kind of went into this thing blindfolded, but ultimately I'm very happy with how it's worked out. I actually had this conversation with my wife the other day. It's like, my life looks a lot different. One of the things that people don't realize, especially with content, is that it's a 24 seven job. It's absolutely 24 seven, specifically in sports. If you think about sports, all the events in most cases take place at night. So it's nights and weekends. It's Monday night football. It's Thursday night football. It's basketball games at night. It's, you know, soccer matches overseas early in the mornings. It's obviously the weekends, college football is all Saturday. NFL is all Sunday. It is a full-time job from a a content capacity standpoint. So I think people need to be aware of that specifically in sports before they ever try to do anything from a content side. But the thing that I would say off of that is like, even though it's 24-7, I would not change anything about it, really, right? Like, sure, there's some instance where I'm like, okay, do I really want to go watch this game? I'm exhausted, whatever. Then I do that, right? Like, I don't think people expect people in sports to watch every single game of every single sport. That's just not a reality. I do a lot of reading throughout the day, right? So I'm subscribed to basically every service you could possibly imagine from, obviously, the athletic to a bunch of other ones too. And I read a ton. I read a ton. I print out articles. I read them. I read them on my laptop. I have an iPad that I sometimes use late at night to go read as well. So I think that's a decent portion of it too. But the conversation that I had my with my wife was like, even though that is unfortunate in some regards and difficult sometimes because maybe we want to go do something or we're tired or I don't want to go watch this game or whatever it is, right? It's nights and weekends. I wouldn't change any of it because I'm so much more happy in how my life looks today than it did even just a few years ago. And my life wasn't bad. Again, don't get me wrong. But the idea now that I can sit back and spend time at home right? I have the flexibility to kind of work when I want, although I would argue that I work way more now than I did before. I have the ability to go meet a bunch of people. I've met people that you guys wouldn't even imagine, that I as a kid would not have even imagined I would be able to, meet, right? Like heroes of mine, people that I looked up to in sports, people that I watched on TV all the time. I've had opportunity to just sit in rooms with them and talk to them for an hour, talk about stories, talk about their playing days, talk about their post-retirement life, their investments, stuff like that. So ultimately, that's the stuff that I get really excited about. And the things that I look forward to most on my calendar when I look at the week and say, okay, what do I have to do? All right. That's enough about me though. Let's get into the sports business questions. The first one here I have is from Travis Levinson. Guys, I apologize if I pronounce some names wrong. Again, these are coming from Microsoft Teams. I have not met most of these people in these cases, so I'll try my best. But this one's from Travis Levinson. He said, what do you think is the most exciting technological development in sports slash sports business right now? So this is a great question. It's a little bit open-ended. There's so many different things going on in sports right now that I personally am excited about. I think the future of sports, if we zoomed out and we went 10 years down the road, is going to look drastically different. Now, this is stuff that's hard to imagine in the present tense. Like if you look a week out, a month out, a year out, things don't always change that quick, right? There's like little small things that happen, maybe a couple big things. But 10 years, in my opinion, is where you start to see these major changes. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that I'm most excited about is seeing how people watch sports and how that changes. So the cable bundle and all of that is kind of its own pot, we'll put that in. Everyone knows what's happening there. Cable is changing. I would argue in most cases, this isn't actually good, right? This is kind of a contrarian opinion at this point, but the cable bundle was unique because it was all in one place. Now, people didn't like that because it was so expensive and you're not watching a lot of the channels, right? So if you're not a sports fan, for instance, You're paying $9 a month for ESPN, whether you watch it or not. Literally for the ESPN channel, you're paying $9 a month to ESPN through your cable provider, whether you turn on that channel at all or not, every single month, right? So like the cable bundle was unique in the aspect where like it wasn't very good if you weren't watching a bunch of channels. But the thing that I think it was really good at, undisputably, is the fact that it was really convenient, right? So everything was on cable. And I'll give you an example. The other day I was watching Thursday Night Football with the Steelers and the Titans. And I forget exactly what I wanted to flip back to, but I wanted to flip back to something on television. And I have a smart TV, but you have to exit the Amazon Prime app. You have to go back into, in this case, I have YouTube TV now. I go into YouTube TV. I find what I want to watch. And to get back to the football game, I have to do that in reverse, right? So it's not conducive to the fact where you can watch multiple things at once unless you have multiple TVs or another way of doing that. So I think from a convenience standpoint, that has already changed, but I'm more excited about how data and technology is impacting viewership long-term. So another good example of this is what Amazon Prime is doing with their Prime Vision broadcast. Some of you have probably heard about me talk this on Twitter over the last few months. I think it's absolutely amazing what they're doing. Now, I think some things are going to have to change for people to want to watch in this vision long-term, but I'll get to that in a second. So for those of you that don't know, Amazon Prime broadcast is their alternative broadcast, right? So they have the main feed with Kirk Herbstreet and Al Michaels, then they have a Spanish feed, and then they have a third feed which is basically just like a data lover's dream, right? Like if you're into data and the data behind sports, you have to go check out this channel. I don't care if you watch it for a second or an hour, just go watch it, turn it on and see what you think. And the way that they're able to do this, so essentially what they're doing is they're gathering data. The NFL has producing this data for nearly almost a decade at this point. I think it was 2016 or 2017 is when they first started collecting next gen stats. And for those of you that don't know, the NFL is much more advanced than other leagues give them credit for. Everyone looks at tennis and they say, okay, we can decide if a ball is in and out within a second because of Hawkeye technology. They saw the soccer balls that were being used at the World Cup. They had to be charged before matches because they have technology within them where you can see if someone's offsides or not. There's optical cameras around the stadium, which helps with the AR and so forth. And like all these other leagues get credit for being technologically advanced. But I would argue that the NFL is right there. And I'll give you another example, which is they have these chips. They're called RFID chips. It's essentially the same technology that powers your tap-to-pay credit card, right? So when you tap-to-pay your credit card at a store, that chip that's in that card is the same technology that is in every NFL player's shoulder pads and in every NFL football that's being used. So everyone looks at the football and they say, okay, you know, we're using note cards to measure if someone got a first down. The spotting of this ball is incorrect. Why can't we just have a chip in the football? And we do have a chip in the football. We do. The NFL has had a chip in the football since 2017. Every single football that they use has a chip in it. And there's a few different reasons why they can't use it or don't want to use it for spotting a ball. One would be that it really doesn't happen as often as many people think. But also, it's really hard to determine if a player's elbow is down, if their knee is down, if some other part of their body is down, where that chip is at when that happens. And also, the chip is only in one part of the football, right? So you could potentially microchip the whole thing. But other leagues have tried that between the USFL and the XFL. And what we found is that it changed the structure of the football, right? So it fundamentally changes how the football feels, how it travels in the air and other things like that. So maybe that technology gets better over time. But the one thing that it has done is provide some incredible data on the players in the game itself. So all the next gen stats that you see from you know Tyree Kill running 22 miles an hour in a game to Tyree Hill again, having 15 yards of separation on a route to you know the force that a player gets hit with to anything else that you see from a next-gen stat standpoint, all of that is coming from that RFID chip. And what Amazon Prime has done is they built this machine learning algorithm where they've collected this data over the last six or seven years now. They put it in this model, and they're now able to determine a bunch of different things. They're able to determine how likely it is that a a team gets a fourth down conversion. One of my favorite things that I uh, talk about all the time is their likelihood that a player blitzes. And I've seen this on Amazon Prime, their vision broadcast over the last few weeks, there's corner blitzes where there's safety blitzes where it literally does not look like the person is blitzing at all. Like to the naked eye, unless you like study football for a living or have watched football for a long time and know the blitz packages, you would not know that that person's blitzing. But if you turn on the Amazon Prime Vision broadcast, you will see them light up with a little red circle, which says, look out for this person, they might be blitzing. I've seen it happen several times over the last few weeks. And it's really impressive how good, this machine learning algorithm has gotten for Amazon. Now, don't get me wrong. I I tweeted about this. Some people are like, oh, NFL teams already have access to this. And yes, they do. They've had access to the RFID chips and the data that comes from from a next-gen stat standpoint since 2016 or 2017. But not all of them have the same machine learning models that Amazon has, right? So maybe this ends up changing the viewing experience. But more importantly, how does this change the game itself, right? Everyone talks about AI and if it could be dangerous or other things like that. Could potentially ruin the sport? I don't know, right? That sounds completely far-fetched. But if we have an ability to already determine how plays are going to pan out without them being snapped, right? Without the ball being snapped, what happens if we have a machine learning model that can predict what plays are going to work best in the situation, right? Do we need an offensive coordinator as bad as we do today? Again, these are hypotheticals. We're potentially a decade out from stuff like this even coming up in conversation. But I do think as crazy as it sounds today, These are the things that we need to be looking at because it doesn't just apply to the NFL. It applies to basketball, right? If you go in the Phoenix Suns practice facility, I think it's the Phoenix Suns. A bunch of other college teams use it too. Their balls have to be charged, right? So the basketballs that they use for practice have to be charged. The players wear chips. I think most of them wear them in their shoes or they could wear them in their jersey when they're practicing. And what they do is they have data from everything, right? How much a player's exertion from a training standpoint during the day, how many shots they're getting up, the spin rate on the ball, how fast the ball is going through the air, the arc. Literally, there is more data being collected in sports today than ever in history. And the average sports fan who just turns on the game and watches their favorite team has absolutely no idea how much data is going into this. We're seeing NFL GMs. We're seeing baseball GMs. They're now being hired from MIT and Harvard and other places like that rather than people who have actually played the game, right? Because we know how important data is becoming in sports. And this is something that is going to change everything from how players are recruited to how teams are are formed to how games are being broadcasted to how wins are constructed. All of that is going to change in the future with the idea that data is becoming more important. But let's move on to the next question. Another question would be from jean Sebastian Lecomte. Jean said, would definitely be interested in hearing your insights on how leagues like NHL, MLS, and MLB could take an example from the NBA to tune into more pop culture and allow their players to express their personal brand more? This is a really interesting question. And to be honest, there's not like an amazing answer. Everyone thinks there's some silver bullet that the NBA and the NFL do much better from a marketing standpoint. You'll hear everyone say, you know, NHL markets their players like crap. MLB is declining. We just had the fourth consecutive low from a World Series viewership standpoint and the least viewed World Series of all time. Viewership has gone from like 45 million people watching the World Series in the 1970s, 1980s, to, I think it was like 9 million, 8 million this past year. So, viewership has totally changed in Major League Baseball and everyone says all the other leagues are marketing their stars much better. But the easiest way to explain this is that the leagues, I believe the good leagues, the NBA, the NFL, compared to the NHL and MLS and MLB, the difference is simply that they promote the individuals. They promote the players, right? They don't promote the teams as much. Now, I think there's some instance of this where like they're already the Kings. They don't have to promote you know, the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Jets and the New York Giants as much as they do the individual players like Patrick Mahomes. Now, the NHL, MLS and MLB, MLB to a lesser extent, but I think are still trying to fight their way up and make sure everyone knows the teams, picks a team they want to follow. But I think what they're misunderstanding is that culture has changed and society has changed. If you look at the data, again, back to that, Morning Consult has done a bunch of studies on this. I've seen a bunch of data on this, how individuals today will call it TikTok culture, for example. They want to follow other people, not teams, not brands. And one of the examples that I always use is that if you're a football fan, maybe you're just a fan of Patrick Mahomes, right? I grew up, me personally, I grew up a fan of the New York Giants because although I grew up in North Carolina, my dad is from New Jersey. He grew up a Giants fan and we watched Giants games all my childhood. Literally every Sunday we would sit down, we would watch Giants games. And that still happens to some degree. But with social media today, the way that these athletes are creating their own brands on social media platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and more, these fans, these kids now are growing to like players instead of teams, right? So when I grew up as a Giants fan because my dad watched the games, a young kid today may be a fan of Patrick Mahomes simply because he likes Patrick Mahomes, and that's why he watches Chiefs games. He doesn't care about the Chiefs, right? A better example is probably LeBron James, right? If you're a fan of LeBron James… At one point, you were a fan of the Cleveland Cavaliers, then you were a fan of the Miami Heat, then you were back to the Cavs, now you're a fan of the Lakers, right? You have to follow all these different teams because he changes teams, and your allegiance is to him, not necessarily an individual team. So that is something that I think has changed a lot over the last few years, and it's one of the things that the NBA and the NFL do really, 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 really well. They promote the individuals, they promote Patrick Mahomes, they promote Tom Brady, they promote LeBron James, they promote all of the individuals rather than the teams themselves right? If you look at how the NFL or the NBA does their marketing today, sure, you'll see the team names because they own the rights to them. Obviously, having that marketing ability is powerful, but the athlete is front and center. Now, some people will say, okay, the NHL players have boring personalities. Maybe some of them do, but I guarantee you not all of them do, right? Sure, maybe your best player, Sidney Crosby, he's not the most entertaining guy. Are you going to really promote him? Maybe not, but there's a bunch of other guys in the NHL that have amazing personalities and should be at the forefront of the marketing campaign, of the NHL. MLS, same thing. MLB, for sure. We always talk about the unwritten rules in baseball. There's a million different players that want to show their personality more, but aren't either allowed to or are scared to do that because of the response from fans, traditional baseball fans, or the league itself. So if I had to explain it in just a couple words here, I think the most simple way to put it is that the best leagues, the NBA and the NFL, allow the player to be front and center rather than the team or the league. And vice versa, the NHL, MLS, and MLB do the opposite, which is they promote the league and the team, and then the player is secondary. And it's kind of like you take one step back to take two steps forward, right? Although it may seem counterproductive to promote the player instead of your league or the team, you're actually helping yourself because those are the people that everyone wants to follow. That's the easiest way that I can think about it, and I think most people should probably be thinking about it that way too. Another question here is from Terrell Jones. He said, with Michigan scandal going on, do you think NFL scouts and executives will evaluate Michigan players harder? You know, I don't necessarily evaluate players. Again, I take more things from a sports business standpoint, but I don't necessarily believe that's probably true. I think in most cases, the NFL scouts probably have a process that they've adhered to for several years now, and they recruit and scout players mostly in the same way. And I think a good example of this is Aiden Hutchinson. Aiden Hutchinson was a top draft pick last year. He went into the year with the Detroit Lions, and he had a great year. I mean, he had nine and a half sacks in his rookie year. He was second in the defensive rookie of the year voting. He has four and a half sacks already for this year. And the Lions are really, 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 really good. But Aiden Hutchinson also dealt with the Connor Stallions scandal last year, right? So he was on that team where all these videos are popping up of Stallions saying, oh, here's what Ohio State's doing on a player, whatever it is, right? So if that was true, why wouldn't we compare his career to that? He's having a great start to his career. He's two years in. He's got a bunch of sacks. He's got over, you know, 13, 14 sacks at this point, second in the year in defensive ranking last year for rookies. He's done a great job. Now, look, that doesn't mean that they're not going to look at some of these things a little bit more differently, but it's pretty obvious in most cases if a player knows when a play is coming. And the thing I always harp on is like Deion Sanders had a great quote, whether you love Deion or you hate Deion, he said, I could give them the playbook. They still got to stop it. Right. And that's very true. I grew up playing uh, football in high school, and many of you probably did too, whether it was in high school or college or even the NFL. You could know the play that's coming, right? And if you're just better than the other team, if you're physically better than the other team, you can still win. Obviously, it changes things if you know the play is coming. It gives you an advantage to some degree. But there's some players where that really just doesn't matter for. And that's Aiden Hutchinson. It's other players like that. So maybe they'll look at players a little bit harder. But ultimately, I don't think this is going to have a huge impact on Michigan players themselves and the culture of college football. I do think, as you guys heard in last week's podcast, that some things are going to change from a technology standpoint. But again, I don't think that ultimately it's going to have too much of an impact on the individual players themselves because they really didn't do anything wrong, right? If you're sitting on the field, the NCAA doesn't want to punish you because one of your assistant coaches may have went rogue or maybe a couple of the other coaches know too, including the head coach. But however it had to be, you know, come about, the players didn't go do this. They're not going to games. They're not paying money to go to games and scout them and do all this other stuff. They shouldn't be punished, and I don't think the NFL scouts are going to punish them either. Next question is from Bill Becker. He said, hey, Joe, my question is concerning streaming apps. Why are they geofenced? If someone in Arizona wanted to subscribe to a streaming app in Florida to watch heat games, you can't. It would seem that the broadcasters would welcome the extra money. So I think this one is actually pretty straightforward. There's a lot of nuance that goes into this. But again, the easiest way to explain something like geofencing in watching sports games and streaming apps is that it's blackout restrictions. So the leagues go out and they sell their rights on a national level and a local level, and then they create other packages like an NFL Sunday ticket or something like that, right? So these networks and these companies are paying a tremendous amount of money for the rights to these games. So if you have a national game, you can black it out vice versa if there's a local rights dispute with that, right? So if you're living in Arizona and you want to watch a Miami team, there's still market restrictions, local market restrictions in place. So viewers have to tune in to either the local or the national broadcast partners who, as we know, pay big money for the TV rights. If you want to look at the Utah Jazz and Phoenix Suns, for example, they were unique in this offseason. We all know what's happening with the RSNs, the regional sports networks. They're declining. The Phoenix Suns got a lot of credit, and I gave them a lot of credit too because it is cool. It's it's something that they should be applauded for. They gave out TV antennas, right? So not only did they make their games free to air over the broadcast, which made their audience tremendously bigger. They added like a few million people that could watch their games now versus who had access to the RSN. But – The dirty little secret about that is that they really didn't have an option, right? Like the RSN wasn't going to be able to make payment. They're going bankrupt. They'd already missed a payment. So what are you going to go do? The best thing to do is spin that from a PR perspective and make it like, oh, we're giving everyone the games for free. Great, cool, awesome. But you really didn't have any other option. But I would use them as an example, the Phoenix Suns and the Utah Jazz, because they both did that, right? They both are now allowing games to stream over their TV network for free from an antenna standpoint. But the reason they're able to do this is because one, now they have the rights to their own games. But it's important because you still have to be inside local distribution areas to get access to their streaming services, right? Whether it's Jazz Plus or Suns Live, plus the ability to watch over-the-air broadcast, right? So you still have to live in those areas, whether that's in the Utah area or the Phoenix area, to be able to have access to those games. It's the same for the Miami Heat. It's the same for the New York Yankees. It's the same for the LA Lakers. There's national, there's local, and there's a bunch of other ways to cut up the broadcast too. There's blackout restrictions because of that, because these companies are paying so much money to broadcast the rights to this game. All right. Next question is from Darsh. Darsh said, focusing on the ongoing Cricket World Cup, what are the consequences of the Olympics, including cricket officially in the 2028 Olympics? I don't think there's any consequences. I think being included in the Olympics is great. It's obviously going to be a T20 version of cricket, which as cricket fans know is different. But as people who don't watch cricket should know, it's a different variety of the game. It's a shorter version of the game. And it's a game that is much more similar to baseball in summer, right? It just takes a few hours. You can play it in one day and people are able to tune in. This is something that is trying to get upstarted with Major League Cricket here in the United States. The CEO of Microsoft is one of the biggest investors in that business, and they're trying to bring it here to the United States. Now, cricket and baseball used to be very similar, right? But then they kind of split out. Baseball went to the Western world. Cricket stayed over in India and places like that. And what we've seen is that cricket is tremendously popular in those parts of the world, and baseball is declining in popularity in these portions of the world when I'm speaking of the Western world. And cricket is going to be in the Olympics. People take the Olympics for granted. I think the Olympics have certainly lost a little bit of its luster, and it's changed a few over the years. They're including a bunch of different sports now. But the best example that I can give you for the Olympics and the power of the Olympics is with the NFL. This is something that I've written about, I've podcasted about, I've made videos about. And it's very important because... The NFL has been trying for years, for almost a decade probably at this point, to get flag football included in the Olympics. And the reason they're doing that is because if they really want to grow internationally, they'll do the games in London, they have a game this weekend in Germany, they'll do games in Mexico City and other places like that. But if you really want to grow internationally, you have to get people to play the game, right? I like football, basketball, and baseball because I played those games growing up. I watched those the most. It's the same thing with football internationally. It's hard to get people in London or Germany or India or other places like that to follow the NFL if they've never touched a football, if they've never thrown a football, if they never played the sport of football, if they've never seen it locally, if none of their friends watch it or none of their friends talk about it. And the reason I say this is because flag football is that wedge, is that it's that wedge that the NFL is going to use to recruit a bunch of new fans into the sport they know that not only does it protect younger players from getting to tackle football too early, right? So we say, okay, the percentage of people that are willing to play tackle football has been declining in the United States from a youth level. We know that parents are now concerned about CTE. What do you do about that? You say, okay, we're gonna limit the amount of hits that you take to a head until you reach high school, right? So we don't want young kids playing tackle football. We're gonna create a flag football league now where you can learn the rules of the game. You can play, you can have fun. You can fall in love with the sport. And then the likelihood of that person playing and wanting to play in high school dramatically goes up, right? So one, it's helping the NFL combat the CTE study that's going on in the United States today. But number two, back to them recruiting new fans, to be included in the Olympics, I forget off the top of my head, but I think you have to be played in like 70, 75 countries or something like that. And there has to be an equal number of people in like different regions playing the game, right? So to be included, the NFL has spent a decade and and potentially, you know, certainly millions of dollars, maybe tens or hundreds of millions of dollars at this point, to build up this infrastructure of flag football across the world, right? So it's certainly popular here in the U.S., in the U.S., but they've been doing it everywhere. And the reason for that is because if you're able to make it an Olympic sport, now you're drastically opening up the wedge of people that are going to be playing flag football. And it does the exact same thing that it does here in the United States, which is get people interested in the sport from a young age because they say, I can go to the Olympics. I can play this game here domestically in my own country. And if I'm one of the best players in my own country, I can compete in the Olympics. The Olympics still holds that value for a lot of young kids throughout the world. And I think the same thing is true with cricket, bringing cricket on the global stage to people who may not be familiar with the game or watch the game. I've watched a few cricket games in my lifetime, especially over the last few years. I've watched more than I have in the past. And I think it's an awesome game. I think if people watched it, they would really enjoy it. And the Olympics has the ability to do that. So that's where I would leave with that at. Next question, Mitchell Cohen. Mitchell Cohen says, With NIL now in place, what would be your advice to top tier college athletes on how to approach brand deals, treating themselves now as a business? Now, look, I don't want to give financial advice to anyone. I don't want to tell you how to go get deals, how to invest your money, how to build your brand or anything like that. But I do think the last point of that is particularly important, which is building your brand. The thing that I most commonly talk to athletes about is most of them have regrets about not doing enough to build their brand while they were still active right? So there's a very short period of time. If you talk about the NFL, that's like three and a half year average career. It's a little bit longer for baseball and other sports like that, but let's call it, you know, five to seven years you have at a high level to command attention from a fan base. That's all you have to go build your brand. When you leave, if you're not an especially good player, I hate to say it, but no one's going to care. No one's going to care about you, right? The fans automatically lose interest when you're not playing for the team anymore. Now, if you contribute a lot, if you won championships, that can change a little bit for sure. But ultimately, you have five to seven years to go build your brand, whether it's in college sports, or professional sports or whatever it is. You have this window of attention that's on you. And what are you going to go do with that? Right. We've seen a bunch of people. Livy Dunn is a good example, actually, from an NIL standpoint. She's the gymnast at LSU. No one follows LSU gymnastics, right? I mean, certainly some people do. I don't mean that in a negative way, but I would guarantee you that 95% of her fans, maybe 99% of her fans don't watch her gymnastics meets, right? But she has taken the platform that she's been given. And use these platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, to build up this fan base where she's now going to make way more money off of that. She already is and will continue to make way more money off of that than anything she's ever going to do athletically from a gymnastics standpoint. The two uh, Cavender basketball players at Miami, another great example, right? There's other examples in men's sports as well. And I would caution this with like, you still have to dedicate yourself to the game because if you don't have some other advantage right around why people should go follow you if you're not entertaining or other things like that then they're not going to do it if you are a good athlete one of the best quotes i actually ever heard about this i believe it was from kobe bryant he said something along the lines of like none of that shit mattered to me at first because i was just trying to get championships and my next contract right like there's some quote around that i'm i'm certainly misquoting it but essentially what he was saying was like If you're, if you're destined to be a very good athlete and you're on the cusp of making it professional, like obviously you should focus on becoming the best athlete you could possibly become, but what are you doing in the other hours of the day, right? The other eight, nine, 10 hours that you're not training or you're not practicing, or maybe it's even two to three hours. You could certainly do something. You could offer an opinion. There's a bunch of golfers on Twitter right now that I'm really enjoying because they're just offering their opinion and breaking down exactly what happens on tour, what they're seeing players struggle with. They're breaking down how uh, sponsorship deals work. And this is stuff that fans love, right? And it's things that get you committed to the player, whether they perform well or not. They're building this audience because they have this attention. I think college players can do the exact same thing. NIL has obviously opened the door for them to go make money. But from an ability to build an audience, that is incredibly more important than a $10,000 or a $20,000 or a $30,000 or a $40,000 or a $50,000 NIL deal is in college. That's a lot of money. I 100% understand that. Some players come from nothing. They need that money, and it's great for them and their fam. But ultimately, you need to be thinking about the long game and the ability to make more money in the long run by building up your own brand and building a business out of that. All right, that's it for today though, everyone. I got to as many as I could in the last 30 minutes. I don't want to make this podcast too long. I know a lot of you listen to this when you're going to the gym or commuting or other things like that. So I'm going to keep it at 30 minutes. I think we'll probably have to do this again because my guess is when this goes out, a bunch of people are going to come back with other questions or requests for other things for me to talk about. That's great. I would love to do it. Make sure you subscribe to the Microsoft Teams group. There's a link in the bottom of the podcast description where you'll be able to see it. You can go in there. If you have other questions that you would like me to answer, shoot them to me in there. I'm happy to answer some of them over text and stuff like that as well. Other than that, I hope everyone has a great day. I hope everyone enjoys the Sunday morning game in Germany if you're going to be watching between the Chiefs and the Dolphins. It's going to be awesome. It's really cool to see how much of those fans have adapted to football and how much they really enjoy it. Outside of that, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Enjoy time with your family and friends. I know I will be for sure. And we'll talk on Tuesday of next week.